Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Well, I I want us to look at the blessing of the Lord from Psalm 1 this morning. Uh, This is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. I think it's most appropriate for this time of year, at the beginning of a new year, when we're all kind of thinking about the same things. Maybe you've already made your resolutions and thrown them away for the year. Or maybe you're doing good. You're on a roll. You put one week under your belt, and you're feeling good about the second. Either way, I believe the counsel that the Lord gives here is adequate and helpful and beneficial in every way. So let's go to the word. I'm going to read Psalm chapter 1, and then we'll continue with the message. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. May God bless the reading the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. Psalm 1 makes clear that there are two kinds of people in this world, those who walk in the blessing of God and those who do not. And there's no in-between in this. Now, the psalm doesn't attempt to deal with every issue or problem or situation of life, but addresses life as a whole. Like I said, at the first of a year, we're kind of looking at our whole life and we're looking at the things that we've embroiled ourselves in, that we've committed ourselves to, and the things that we need to commit ourselves to. And that's kind of how the psalmist approaches the counsel that is given here. So at this time of year, when most of us are aiming to improve our life or just being honest about the fact that We're probably not going to ever use that gym membership. We can go ahead and get uh, a reimbursement on that. Uh, I think this is a good guide for us here. And how does it begin? Well, it begins exactly the way anyone would want it to. Blessed is the man. That's a good beginning, isn't it? That word blessed just simply means to be favored in a way that marks your whole life. Most of us have some understanding of blessed, don't we? We hear a lot about it. I am so blessed, people say. They put a bumper sticker on the back of their car. Do they still do that? I think they do that occasionally. Usually it's crooked. And my OCD just like goes nuts when that bumper sticker is crooked. Sometimes you hear this, too blessed to be stressed. I've never bought into that. Matter of fact, I think they're trying to tell themselves that until the stress goes away. We have these different ways of articulating this. I remember a number of years ago when a famous pop singer, uh, Mary J. Blige, uh, the news headlines came out that she'd become a Christian. And her phrase in the article simply said this, my God wants to bless me with bling. (laughs) So like I said, everyone has a concept of blessing. 
But whether or not it's right remains a point of debate. You know, one of the reasons that the scriptures include benedictions and, and, and one of the ways that we end of each of our services is, is with a benediction is to bestow a blessing from God on people. So the hearing of a blessing from God is, is one form, one manner, if you will, of God blessing his people to remind us that he is bestowing his blessing upon us. And when the, when the Bible mentions God's blessing, he's, it's mentioning the favor of God that, that is, is established upon all of life. The Lord bless you and keep you. It's the holistic consuming of God's presence upon your life. His bestowing of his goodness in measure that is typically beyond our imagination in every way on that life. So when the passage begins, and this is my first point here, when the passage begins, blessed is the man, it doesn't really matter what follows. You want it. You want it because God's blessing is a favor that is unlike anything that this world can offer us. And Psalm chapter one, verse two makes clear that the key to God's blessing, look at verse two there, is the one who delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on that law day and night. The key to God's blessing is the person who delights in God's word who delights in taking in the revelation of God and the truth of God so that it saturates their whole life. You know, delighting in God's word changes everything. It's very often this time of year, people are renewing their Bible reading plans and, and it's a good time of year to restart some of those things. If you're not, I would encourage you to do so because having a discipline like that is very beneficial and very helpful for your life. Because reading God's word, man, it changes everything. But most of all, as the gospel does, it changes you. It changes you. God has come to bring eternal change in us. And so what I want us to do in the beginning of this year is this. I want us to understand that the Lord's blessing consumes the whole life of the one that delights in God's word. The Lord's blessing consumes the whole life of the one that delights in God's Word. And I want to run after the question this morning how is it that God's blessing consumes a person to mark their whole life? How is it? I believe this is what the psalmist is setting forth for us as we look at three marks of God's blessing that compel every person to delight in God's word. Three marks that compel us to delight in God's word because of the blessing that God places on our life. The first mark that I want us to look at are in verses one and two, and simply this, when you delight yourself in God's word, it determines the direction of your life. When you delight yourself in God's word, it determines the direction of your life. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. The psalmist begins with the literary tool of contrast here, something we're, we're, we're familiar with by using three phrases that emphasize the opposite of what transpires in God's blessing. And we, we understand this. Sometimes when people ask us to explain something or to define something, one of the first things that we'll do is tell you what it's not to help you understand what it is. 
And that's what the psalmist is doing here. It's a typical contrast that is used to emphasize the glaring uh, distinction between the two. In other words, it's nothing like this. It's completely opposite of this. So look with me at these three phrases that emphasize the opposite of God's blessing. First of all, it says that the first phrase addresses the way a person behaves in accordance with the counsel of wickedness, or what I'll say is the absence of God's counsel. I'm preparing this. I'm going, I wonder how many people, when we read this, read and go, who walk not in the counsel of the wicked. Well, well, I'm not wicked. I don't want anything to do with wickedness. I, I don't consider myself wickedness, so that must have nothing to do with me. Maybe so. Hold with me for just a moment, though. The word counsel here and the word walk is is talking about how it is you go about your daily life. Day after day, making the, the small decisions and the large decisions, but the decisions that come about on a day by day basis. And then where is it that we find the counsel that helps us make those determinations and make those decisions that steer the actions of our life? How often many of us value counsel that's simply absent of God, not so much because we're trying to reject God, but we've just dismissed him or we've neglected to give him any bandwidth of energy in our life. We haven't considered him, particularly in the area of that decision. What I'm saying to you today is that that's what the Bible here is calling wickedness. Why? Because it's absent of God. And without God, there is no goodness. No matter how normal it may feel or seem to us, no matter how well it may work, the Bible is saying absent of God makes for wickedness. Now that word for wicked can be helped a little bit because it also carries a meaning that we are familiar with. And that meaning is this, guilt. You ever felt guilt? We've all felt guilt. If you haven't, you better check for a pulse. That'll be the first thing you want to check for if you're not familiar with guilt. Why? Well, wickedness carries this meaning of guilt because godless counsel always leads to carry the guilt of the decision. Romans chapter 3 teaches us that there are none that are righteous, not even one. There are none who seek after God, none that know God in and of themselves. Now, some of you, like myself, were raised around the church or in the church, and you've never known a day of your life without the love of God. And, and I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for the way that my parents uh, raised me in that. But, but I have to tell you, that doesn't make re- me remiss in my own nature of sin to be absent of wickedness where God is not present, not just in the environment, but ultimately in the heart and life of an individual. There is that guilt that wickedness and sin brings. So what the psalmist is saying here when he says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, is that he's saying, blessed is the man who walks not with the baggage of guilt. Guilt that sin brings. Guilt that brokenness from God brings. Separation from God. And, 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 and the wickedness that, that it roots itself from. You see, choosing to walk in godlessness is what brings the baggage of guilt. Choosing to walk in sinful practice, sinful ways, sinful habits, sinful uh, um, uh, uh, practices are the things that bring the guilt. Why? Because guilt is not from God 
Guilt is from sin, unrighteousness, and wickedness. That kind of changes it, doesn't you? Think about all the times you have experienced guilt and you go, wait a minute. That means God was absent. It means what was prevailing, what was dominant, that caused the guilt was superseding the Lord in that area, in that way. That's what sin does to us, friends. It, friends, it guilts us. It condemns us. And so he begins in this first phrase by saying the person who walks not in the counsel of the wicked is the person who walks daily with the Lord by faith in the light of his truth. Why? Because they've been set free from the weight of sin's guilt. It doesn't make you perfect. Not saying that. The psalmist is not saying that. It says you're walking in dependence upon the one who removes guilt to take that unrighteousness away and give to us the righteousness of Christ that we have in the gospel. The second phrase addresses the pattern that develops from a life that acts on godless counsel. So one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked nor stand in the way of sinners. There's a progression in these phrases here of immersing oneself into the counsel that they're following. And when we get to the second phrase, we come to one that does not stand in the way of sinners. That word for stand develops by a repeated participation from godless counsel that becomes the standard for the way one lives. That's what the word stand is referring to there. In other words, there is a character that has marked your life because of the repeated pattern by which you've come to be known. You're, you're digging in your heels in your godlessness, in other words. And the person who is blessed does not do this, is what the psalmist is saying. But the person who does not know God's blessing is further entrenching themselves in the repeated participation of their godless counsel. You see, friends, every decision to walk in counsel that is absent of or counter to godliness further establishes your life in the condemnation of sinful guilt. That's what it's telling us, that guilt takes a deeper, stronger hold on you. God's absence and guilt's presence becomes common and familiar in your experience of life. But let me tell you something about sin's guilt. It never becomes comfortable nor restful. You see, that's what sin does to the soul. It exhausts. It exhausts. Why? Because you are striving for something. You are striving to absolve a pain, a situation, a circumstance. You are striving after something that you cannot satisfy. Only God can. So standing in the way of sinners fortifies a life against all manner of godliness. The person who stands not in the way of sinners establishes their life by faith decisions, one step after the other, allowing the Lord Jesus to be the Lord that he is in the life and the decisions that you are making on a daily basis. You're choosing to stand in the truth of the one who is the rock of ages. And as Ephesians 6 says, when it teaches on the armor of God and how it is that the Christian dresses themselves for living, he says, put on the full armor of God so that in the day of evil, you may be able to take your stand. And when you've done everything that you can possibly think of, that you can possibly exert your own energy to do, you will what? It's the most precious phrase in the scriptures, one of them, 
to stand. To stand. Why? Because it's not about you standing. It's about the one on whom you stand. The Lord Jesus. To stand on him. That's what standing is all about. The third phrase shows a life that is defined by godlessness and how it is that it seeks to influence others the same. So walks not in the counsel of the wicked, that day-by-day decision-making under counsel that is absent of God's truth, standing in the way of sinners, so entrenching your life in a way of living that is defined by the sinful patterns of your life. And thirdly, it says, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Again, this progression of influence over your life and now influence from your life. Seat is a position of influence and instruction. Throughout the Bible, to be seated was the place where those who had influence on others would go. In the first century, it tells us in the Gospels that Jesus would come in and, and he would read from the scroll and then he would roll it up and leave it on the table and he would go and he would be seated on a stool over to the side. Why? Because the one who was instructing that morning, that's where they sat. It was a position of influence, a position of instruction. And that's what the psalmist is referring to here. And you know what the strategy was for exerting that influence? Mocking and scorning those who did not agree. Mocking and scorning those who did not agree. This should be no surprise to us because ultimately those who are guilt-laden in their sin and have had no forgiveness nor cleansing from it, who are marking their life by the patterns of that sin, now are doing everything they can to encourage others to do the same. They're simply repeating the voices they constantly hear in their hearts, mocking and scorning because the guilt of sin is doing that to them internally. What does guilt do to you? Makes you miserable, doesn't it? I mean, you've, you've read stories before about murderers who went decades and, and the, the, the crime was unsolved and then all of a sudden, the severe guilt, decades, sometimes 30, 40, 50 years later, the guilt was just eating them from the inside and they turned themselves in. Why? Because they just wanted to be free of the guilt. Guilt makes you misery. And what does misery love? Company. Those who sit in the seat of scoffers want somebody else to be miserable with them. Because loneliness is more than they can handle in the midst of that. You see, mocking and scorning, that's the language of guilt. And the person who sits in the scoffer's seat verbalizes their own guilt by mocking and scorning others, to persuade them to join in the misery of their condemnation. But friends, let me give you what might be considered a positive form of mocking and scorning today that I believe is as equally a form of guilt, mocking and scorning as any other. And it's this concept of the practice of affirming people to remain in their guilt. You see, Satan is so conniving and so uh, like the serpent that he twists things to make us believe what is not true, even about the words that we use. 
And when we affirm people in their sin, we are doing nothing more than mocking and scorning them with the voice of guilt because we don't want to be left alone in our own. Be careful what you affirm. Be careful that the things that you affirm are the things that God would affirm, that God would be present, that would be informed in the affirming by God's truth. For the person who sits not on the seat of scoffers makes a regular practice of sharing the light of God's truth by the gospel and encouraging others in it. Why? Because by the gospel we throw off our guilt and we walk in liberty and the freedom that is in Christ Jesus. That's why Jesus says, come, all who are weary and heavy laden, come and I will give you rest. I will take your heavy burden, your heavy yoke off of you, that burden of guilt that sin has given you, and I will give you my yoke that is light and life. You see, what the psalmist is teaching us is that delighting in the whole counsel and instruction of God's word directs a life into a deeper immersion of godliness and blessing. That if if we were to take the contrast of the negatives out of this, we would see that blessed is the man who walks in the counsel of the godly, who walks in the counsel of God's righteousness and God's truth. And, And we're not talking about perfect performance, friends. None of us exercises perfect performance, but we are talking about because of Jesus Christ and because of the forgiveness that he offers us by taking our place on the cross for us, now by faith we can walk in the counsel of the light of God's truth. We can stand in the way of the faithful. Not because of our faithfulness, but because of his. We stand where he has placed us on him. And we can seat our life in a place, not where we scoff and mock people, but where we speak life into them because of the words of the gospel of Jesus Christ that brings life and have brought life to us. That's why our delight is in the law of the Lord because that's not in us. It's not from us, but it is readily available to us. Our delight is in the law of the Lord and on that law he meditates day and night. There's a deeper immersion. There's a deeper hunger and thirst for the things of God in the way that we are approaching the word of God. You see, you live to walk in the light of God's truth so that his ways become your ways. Not so that you can convince him that your ways are fine, leave me alone. And you gladly encourage and influence others because you know the great value of God's blessing on your life. You see, delighting in God's law determines the direction of life as one consumes their life with the counsel of God's eternal wisdom to follow by faith in the ways and to bring about his will for their life. Well, next, the psalmist shows another great benefit from delighting in God's law. When you delight yourself in God's word, it not only determines the direction of your life, but it determines the depth of your life. Look at verses three and four with me. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Stop right there for a moment. I'm gonna read verse four in just a second. Tell me who doesn't want a little piece of that. 
right? Just like verse one begins, so verse three culminates. Verse four, the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Chaff that the wind drives away. Friends, shallow living entangles the body, constricts the mind, atrophies the heart, and starves the soul. When you root your life in anything other than God's word, you plant yourself in parched soil that will never sustain the demands of life. Let's look at the contrast. How is it that one roots their life in the shallowness of parched soil? How do we live shallow? Well, one way that we live shallow according to God's word is just by simple indulgence in the practices that oppose God's word. Like that shallow living, it's easy living. I'm telling you, temptation always gives you an easier way out from obeying God. And the easiest and the first way for us to root our life shallowly in parched soil that will never provide for our need is to continue to indulge in the practices that oppose God's word. Whether doing what he said not to do or not doing what he has commanded you to do, both ways. But there's a second way that I think is far more acceptable and I think in our context, we are far more susceptible to. It is this, to busy oneself in practices from which you expect more than they can provide. We're gonna stop here for a moment. To busy yourself in practices from which you expect more and come to demand more than that practice can provide. You know what you call this? It's a fundamental rhythm of idolatry. This is what idolatry is all about. Though most would not identify idolatry in this way, it is exactly what it is. When you consume life in this way, what you will do is you'll inevitably make adjustments to meet the growing demand of the resource, whether in time, in energy, in thought, or in money. Just think for a moment about these things. It may be a relationship. And man, you've enjoyed that relationship and, and it's provided some benefit for your life. You just want to see it continue and you'll begin to make adjustments of life to make sure whatever needs to happen can happen so it can continue. When, when we expect too much of our job, a job is a good thing. That's a whole other sermon that I could preach and try to convince some of you that it's actually a good thing to have one. But we take the good of our job and try to make it God when we begin to demand more out of it. Maybe in the compensation we receive, but I'm not really even talking about that. I'm talking about the satisfaction that we get out of it or the meaning that it provides for our life. And we try to squeeze it and press everything out of it that we can absolutely get from it. But at the end of the day, we're not satisfied in it. Why is that? Because we've put so much on it, it will never be able to provide what we've expected from it. That's idolatry. Maybe it's material things. Now we're getting into what is more commonly accepted as idols and idolatry. We we get a new something, we get a classic old something, whatever the case may be, however you may define it, and it's the bomb. 
You want everybody to see it. You take it around. You show it out. And, 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 and all of a sudden, you, 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 you're trying to, to you're, you're, you're adjusting your life. You're, you're joining communities because those communities know how to honor this kind of thing or whatever the case may be. And, and, and all of a sudden, you're consumed with it. The same is true of recreations. Listen, there, there is no end to what a world without God will take and try to make God. And you say, are we as Christians just supposed to run away from all of that? No, we're actually supposed to enter into it and show how we can use the things of this world to bring glory to God. But friends, when we don't, it's idolatry. I think more than not, what begins with simple busyness Now I'm meddling. Eventually wearies the heart and clouds the mind until the pang of the soul begins to cry out. No more. No more. You see, our temptation here is for us to read this verse and go, man, I wonder what a life of chaff would be like. That the wind just drives away. And yet some of you are living right on the surface. And the breezes are moving you ever so slowly along. You're just waiting for a little stronger wind to pick you up and carry you somewhere you didn't want to go, somewhere you never intended to end up. But that's exactly where sin will put you every time. We have ignored the reality of our own overburdened rhythm and resource. And listen to me, friends. The best way to discern shallow living at the earliest stage is to consider the psalmist's words for how the demands of life are affecting you. When your life is driven by the winds of the world's demands, in unending busyness, constant hurriedness, and always in mindless activity, you can know you are rooting your life in shallow, parched soil. Now hold with me because the psalmist provides clear understanding for how it is that a life that delights in God's law ought to be marked. Listen to this. The life that is deeply rooted is never driven by the world's winds but is always sourced from God's supply. You see where that tree got planted? By the streams of water. That's where it is rooted. The life that is deeply rooted plants itself in the right place next to the only source that'll never dry up to receive sufficient provision for the demand in each season. The life that is deeply rooted is a life that is lived from the supply that God provides to steward the resource that he has given to walk in the light of his truth by his power, trusting in him, not just in the way of our choosing. God wants me to be blessed with bling. Why? So I can look good for him. God's not interested in that, friends. What God desires, what God expects of us to fulfill the will of God is for us to live and walk with him, not just for him. And that's, that's a very uh, uh, important aspect in the way that we live our life. For the life that is deeply rooted, listen to this one, does not demand that every season be the same. You would think we would understand seasons in Missouri, right? They change every week. 
Like if you go back to August and then September and October and November, like it was summer and then winter. And then summer came back and then winter came back and then we had some more summer and winter. Now winter's about to come back and probably summer's not far away. I don't know that those are seasons or just simple schizophrenia of the weather patterns. But so often we demand that every season be the same. But the life that is deeply rooted does not make that demand. Rather, it labors in the right things for each season so that the quality of fruit that gets produced at harvest will be good. Look at the word. Planted by streams of water, there's the provision that yields its fruit in its season. You know, not all fruit blossoms and matures every season. Yes, we know that. We just, that's just the way things work, right? That's right, and that's the way your life works too. Because God is the God of seasons. And even that, its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers Who is it that prospers? The one that doesn't demand that every season be the same, but in each season labors for the right thing so that when the season of harvest come, the fruit that gets produced is good. I remember I planted an apple tree one time in our yard and about a year in, an apple appeared. (sighs) Thought how exceptional I am. The instructions said it'd be three years before there was any fruit that got produced on this tree. I managed to grow one in one year. And I've never planted another apple tree like it because of what that one bite told me. That fruit got produced. It did not get produced well. That's a life of being deeply rooted. Listen to this in last one. The life that is deeply rooted rests in the provision of God to see all the fruit not only of life, but listen to this, fruit of the Spirit grow to full maturity. You see, friends, when you look at the contrast of oppositions here, here's what you learn. That what God is doing is not like what sin and the world are doing in you. Because what guilt will never allow you to do is to rest. It's exhausting. It's a constant striving after the wind is what the wisest man in all the world wrote in his record of Ecclesiastes in the Bible. It's an unending strivist. What the gospel does is it gives you rest. Sometimes it gives you rest in your recreation. Sometimes it gives you rest in your labor at work. Sometimes it gives you rest when you vacate. Sometimes it gives you rest in different areas and aspects of life. But when you worship the one who is able and supplies with great abundance all that you need, the first thing you have in him is rest. So that everything else in him produces and prospers for you. You see, the life that is deeply rooted produces good for God's glory to supply for your need, to supply as a blessing for others, and to give to you satisfaction in all of life. Let me pause for a moment and ask you to consider at this point of the year 
And as you may be making your New Year's resolutions or vows or whatever the case may be, where are you planting your life? What are you taking root in? Is it shallow living? Or is it deepening your life in that which will hold you? Is the supply you're receiving meeting life's demands? In other words, is there a growing sense of gratitude and thanksgiving? Is there a contentment in you in that? Is there a love that's expressed from you because of that contentment? You see, following Christ does not mean, listen to me, this is where I'm going to try to correct something you may have misheard earlier. It does not mean that we live as Christians slow and bored. That is not the inherent Christian life that Psalm 1 is teaching us here. You can know busyness, and you often will. You can have some hurriedness because there are seasons in this broken world that demand immediate attention. I believe you can even have some mindlessness of life. Enjoy some things that don't overly engage the intellect, but just have fun. I believe you can do all of these things without living shallowly. But listen to me, friends. You cannot maintain a continual rhythm of them without starving the soul. The gospel draws us in to drink deeply, to taste and see that the Lord is good. These are all full immersion images that the Bible uses to bring us into a deeper relationship with God. And being deeply rooted means that in everything we do, we understand that our source is the light and the truth of the gospel. We, we are living in full submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Refuse to do anything that you can't bring honor and glory to Christ from. If you say, well, I don't know if I can or not, then stop now and think about it before you keep doing it. And then as the Spirit of God reveals to you how you bring honor and glory to God, make the adjustments your life demands to honor the name of Jesus Christ in everything you do. At your job, don't show up on Monday morning just to get through the grind. That's a bad witness to Jesus Christ. You give every minute for every dollar that you are compensated and give a little more to bless the organization, the institution, whoever it is that you work for. You make a mark in the way that you serve and live your life so people go, wow, where does that come from? When you're at the recreation field, love it. Even if it's spring kids soccer. And it is negative 40 degrees with an 80 mile an hour wind and rain. But if you're going to be there, be there. And be there with the Lord who is walking with you. Don't settle to check out and leave the Lord at home for where you go. When you're at home, Yes, did you hear that? Even my phone knows. When you are at home, you ready? Be there. Be present. Be with. Be serving the Lord 
and seeking the Lord in that place, for that hour, for that time. And parents, make sure you are constantly and continually instructing and disciplining and training your children in the same. When God blesses your life, all you do, everything serves to produce what you need, when you need it, for all your needs, and even much to be generous to meet the needs of others. That's a life that is deeply rooted, intentional, decisive. When you delight yourself in the Lord, it determines your direction. When you delight yourself in the Lord's word, it determines the depth of your life. When you delight yourself in God's word, it determines your destiny. Look at verse five. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Finally, what the psalmist tells us, what happens to the life that delights in God's word or doesn't, that the way you live now, today, determines the destiny of your being forever. It doesn't mean you live a perfect life. It means you've been forgiven by a perfect redeemer. And friends, if that means that you're simply sitting on a decision you made back when, but that decision has not affected any decision you've made since, be very careful. It probably didn't make the difference you thought it made then. One simple comprehensive statement describes the one who is blessed. It says this, the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Blessed is the man Blessed is the person who the Lord knows. The question is, does God know you? Oh yeah, I know. It can be easy to say, well, I know God. No, if your name got called to him, would he know you? That's what I'm talking about. That's what the psalmist is speaking of here. How does he know that person? Because they've been known by him. They walk and they stand according to his word. Those seemingly little decisions that we make every day that matter in so much larger ways than we too often admit. You see, friends, destiny is not merely where the direction of your life has led you, but rather led you in following Jesus and how the depth of your life in trusting him has held you when the storms of life have blown against you. Ralph Waldo Emerson famously stated, sow a thought and you reap an action. Sow an act and you reap a habit. Sow a habit and you reap a character and sow a character and you reap a destiny. The Bible says, when you delight yourself in anything other than God's word, that thing consumes your whole life to lead you away from God eternally. But when you delight yourself in the word of God. And you live your life to immerse yourself in it more and more each and every day. It becomes a delight that determines your destiny by the daily decisions that direct your life and by the rootedness and the depths of your life in God's wisdom and truth in Jesus Christ. Friends, the Lord's blessing consumes the whole life of the one that delights in God's word. I'm going to ask the worship team to return and just say a few final words.
I warn you for 2024, following Jesus will not be easy. It wasn't easy last year, the year before that. It's not going to be easy in the year after this. And anyone who tells you otherwise is not speaking the words of Jesus to you. Why? Because Jesus said this, count the cost. Luke chapter 9 verse 23, he said, if any man would come after me, he must deny himself. That right there makes it hard enough. Take up his cross daily and follow me. You see, friends, sometimes we come into the Christian life wanting the ease of it. And when we approach the Bible, we say, well, I just don't understand it. I, I can't really do it. I, I, you know, I, I don't get into it. I don't, whatever the excuse may be. Let me give you one word of counsel and hopefully it will be as an encouragement to you as you approach God's word. Somebody kill this stupid thing for me. Here's my word of counsel. Discipline will probably be required before delight becomes a reality in reading God's word. But every exercise of discipline will be exponentially rewarded when the delight comes and at just the right time.